is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. Welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Michael Wills, Executive Vice President at the National Bureau of Asian Research. I'm delighted to be speaking today with a couple of uh, longtime contributors to NBR's work. And those are Martin Kazmaski, who's a um, lecturer in political studies at the University of Glasgow in Scotland, and Elizabeth Wishnick, a professor of political science at Montclair State University in New Jersey, but currently on leave for a year as a senior research scientist at uh, the Center for Naval Analysis. Both Marcin and Liz have contributed to NBR's Strategic Asia program, which is an annual assessment of geopolitical trends and changes in the balance of power across the Asia-Pacific region. We have always considered Russia to be an Asian power, uh, but we're talking today about the ramifications of Russia's most recent activities in Ukraine. We're recording this podcast on March 3rd. We're now just one week into the latest phase of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We're at a stage where there's been fierce Ukrainian resistance to Russian troops moving in uh, on several fronts across the border, increasing Russian bombardments of major Ukrainian cities, more than a million refugees fleeing west toward Poland and, and Romania and other countries in Central and Eastern Europe, and really a, an international crisis the likes of which we haven't seen for decades and one that will likely most fundamentally reshape the uh, the international order. Marcin and, and Liz have both written on Russia and China and sort of the implications and, and uh, the uh, strategic objectives that those countries have. And so we're looking forward to, um, to getting their insights today on some of these questions. Marcin, let me start with you. You contributed a chapter uh, into our most recent Strategic Asia book, uh, Navigating Tumultuous Times in the Indo-Pacific, which we published earlier this year. I'd like to ask you first, what do you think Russia is trying to achieve here? What are Vladimir Putin's objectives? What are Russia's strategic objectives with this in invasion of Ukraine? Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. I think that we are facing the conundrum of two principal objectives when it comes to Russia's aggression uh, against Ukraine. So firstly, it's the, the set of aims related to security policy, what is presented by Moscow as making sure that Ukraine will never become a, a NATO member. And the second set of, of objectives, which in my opinion is even more important, relates to Russia's or specifically Vladimir Putin's willingness to bring Ukraine under full control of, of Moscow. And as I understand from the Kremlin's perspective, the only way to do it is to embark on a on regime change and install a government which would be controlled and loyal to Moscow. At this stage, I would hesitate to, to state uh, whether it is whether Russia aims at controlling the whole of Ukraine or whether it might be satisfied with splitting Ukraine into into two parts and controlling only one part of, of Ukraine. But I would I would argue that this domestic political aspect is, is even more important than power political or strategic considerations. From Putin's perspective, Ukraine, which demonstrates that it is possible to build a democratic country, that it is possible to develop and change governments in the meantime is considered a threat to, to, the, to the regime in, um, currently in, in power in Russia. And this is why I would, I would see, this is where I would see the biggest um, challenge for, for, for the external world, how to 
convince Putin that he should change his policy if is in his understanding it is necessary to prevent any modernization of, of Ukraine because it is considered as a threat, as a challenge to Vladimir Putin power domestically. Can I just ask a clarification and follow-up question there? Thank you for that. It sounds from what you're saying as though um, it's really this domestic, political and ideological, almost a defensive uh, reaction from Russia because of the threat that a potentially democratic and democratizing Ukraine, the Ukraine that was was moving toward closer alignment with Europe, potentially even EU membership at some future stage. Is it that ideological challenge that in your view is more significant than the stated aim, which is no Ukraine in NATO and sort of that security challenge that Russia might see from uh, from Ukraine, Ukraine being part of a, a, a NATO alliance that's, that's aligned against Russia? This is exactly my point. I understand Russia's or the Kremlin's incentives as being mostly ideologically driven and driven by the factor of, of regime survival. If we look at, at the strategic implications of, of Russia's policy, before 2014, there were no Western troops in Central and Eastern Europe. Before the current invasion against, against Ukraine, the West was not united. Russia had a number of assets in terms of soft power, sharp, sharp power in, in, in the Western states. It had a number of supporters on the far right, on the far left, but also sometimes in mainstream political parties. Putting it very bluntly, if, if Russia is not does not feel safe having the second largest or if not the first largest nuclear arsenal on Earth, who else might be might feel secure? So I would see the official justification as perhaps not completely, uh, I would not comp- dismiss it completely, but I would see it as, as, as a secondary. And it just fits with, with those narratives that the Kremlin is promoting, the, the narrative of NATO expansion, which the very phrase is also problematic because we should speak about NATO enlargement. Speaking about NATO expansion suggests that those all those states starting from poland and ending with ending with ukraine do not have any agency or any say in in trying to get to nato so i'm especially given also the fact that the euphoria after crimea which helped putin a lot and which helped which propelled his his ratings and his position his popularity in the, in the russian society it subsided around 2018 for me it is clear that the legitimacy of the Kremlin and the possibility to find new avenues to mobilize society, it it diminishes and it is even more and more difficult for the Kremlin to uh, use any positive, in, in quotation marks, incentives. It has to re- resort to more and more repression. It is you know, shrinking the, the space for, for, for public discourse F- from this perspective or from the perspective of, of the war against Ukraine, the change of constitution in 2020, the trial of and, um, and jailing of, of Alexei Navalny, it also looks as if the Kremlin has prepared the ground domestically to minimize potential potential um, resistance to, to this war. And we also see that the Kremlin does not seem to care that much about public opinion. The, Perhaps it is going to change along with growing uh, Russian casualties and uh, with uh, growing resistance. But so far, it seemed that 
the Kremlin counted on, on genuinely very quick campaign, quick victory, and it seems that it didn't see the need to prepare the society for for this type of of, of a conflict. Thank you. I, I'm going to come back to a couple of those in a minute, but let me bring Liz in here. What's striking for me is that um, this latest stage of the Russian invasion of Ukraine began shortly after the end of the Winter Olympics. Just before the Winter Olympics began, uh, Vladimir Putin traveled to Beijing and met in person with Xi Jinping, uh, one of Xi's first in-person uh, visitors for a number of years because of the pandemic. Uh, and one of the, the outcomes of that was this, this statement that uh, China and Russia friendship had no limits. So Liz, I'd, I'd like to ask you to kind of give us some background on, on how you think China is viewing this latest situation. There's a lot of speculation in the media now about how much China knew about the invasion ahead of time. Obviously, Chinese official statements are denying that, but, um, but there's clearly a, a closer alignment between Moscow and Beijing that has been brewing for a number of years. We've been writing about it here at NBR. Various authors have looked at this. Give us um, some some of your insights on on how Beijing is viewing this situation and and uh, any assessment that you can share about how Xi Jinping might might view or have viewed the the Russian invasion um, in terms of of China's objectives. Thank you, Michael, for inviting me to discuss these important issues. Uh, you're right. On February fourth, so uh, very shortly before this invasion of Ukraine began. Putin traveled to Beijing and they signed an agreement that supposedly codified their unlimited partnership. And we do see some trends continuing, uh, some of which were described in NBR's Axis of Authoritarianism volume, where the two countries uh, talked about their joint opposition to efforts by outside countries to to interfere in the domestic affairs of states. They uh, spoke about their common positions on certain issues, such as uh, internet sovereignty and, and so on. They talked about their opposition to US and Western alliances and partnerships. And NATO was mentioned specifically in this document, but Ukraine was not. <laughs> so, so if we were looking at that document as the go-ahead for the invasion of Ukraine, I think that's a mistake. Uh, that that was. I think we see there um, not just the way that the partnership is laid out and uh, demonstrating its its deepening character, but also we see the limits to that partnership in the document. Ukraine is not mentioned. There were several aspects to the phrasing that show differences between the two countries. For example, uh, Russia has long stated that it wants a multipolar international system. And China and Russia agreed on that in their 97 statement uh, early on in their partnership, 1997 statement. In this document, there's a language of how Russia understands China's desire to build a community of common destiny, which is Xi Jinping's idea. And some Russian experts are not enthusiastic about this concept because the community of common destiny would involve a leader, which, which would be China and, and not Russia. And so Russia has not embraced that concept. And so China in the document says that it understands Russia's desire for multipolarity. And I think there we see Russia's, Russia's interest in creating a world order where it 
plays a certain role, has a certain status. And I think that goes back to what Martin was saying about uh, the ideological aspect of this invasion, where Putin has, has often said that the collapse of the Soviet Union was one of the worst tragedies of the 20th century. And so here with his invasion, he's trying to recreate um, a new type of expanded Russia that would have buffer states. We were already seeing Belarus playing this role. Um, he, he was counting on Ukraine easily folding into this agenda. And then perhaps Moldova is next, uh, who knows? So, so I think this document shows a deepening of certain common positions, but also some daylight on, on particular issues. And it, it is interesting to speculate how much Xi Jinping knew before uh, this invasion uh, took place. And one of, one of the fascinating details is the instructions from the, Ukra the Chinese ambassador to Ukraine to the 6,000 Chinese nationals living in Ukraine. So initially they were not told to evacuate and they only recently, very recently evacuated. And uh, they were told to the contrary to display Chinese flags. <laughs> and so that is a particularly strange instruction to give people uh, awaiting um, a possible uh, attack. And so why, why would that be? So it could be because they felt that 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 China was aware of a, a some sort of limited Russian attack that they believe would be immediately successful. And so the Russian invading force would respect the Chinese flag. It could be uh, that they they thought that somehow China would be seen as neutral in this uh, situation. And so to call attention to that fact. So it was a peculiar detail of, of if uh, Xi Jinping was aware of an invasion, he seemed to believe it would be a very limited one that would not risk even Chinese nationals who were, who were in the capital city. But now I think China is aware that this, this, this is a much bigger conflict and their interests are, are clearly in the crossfire in terms of facing counter sanctions if they support Russia economically in any way or continue with with typical economic relations. And they they see that their primary strategic partner is, is ostracized by the international community. And so that jeopardizes China's interest in, in Europe, which they were already having difficulty achieving uh, because of their more assertive so-called wolf warrior diplomacy that alienated a lot of countries and also the Taiwan issue that was splitting off some of the smaller democracies from uh, cooperating further with, with China and countries like Lithuania and more recently Slovenia and so forth. So I think it's a very difficult situation that, that China now faces and ha has had to navigate uh, very cautiously as we saw with its two abstentions on recent UN resolutions. Right, thanks Liz. Let me come back to Marcin for a minute here. This idea that, that maybe Russia's trying to um, you know, re-establish itself uh, or, re or Putin's trying to re-establish the Soviet Union or some form of uh, larger Russia power with buffer states. I mean, from a lot of the work we've done with, with numerous authors in Strategic Asia over the years, that's clearly been a, a driving part of Russian strategic thinking. And yet, 
the response from from the West so far has been quite united. Um, the sanctions are beginning to take effect. It it does seem as though um, you know we're we're speculating, but that, that everyone was assuming that, that or that Russia was assuming that it would be able to move in relatively quickly and establish control. And now we're looking at a very different circumstance where Russia is isolated internationally. The costs for the Russian economy will be very significant. Notwithstanding what you mentioned earlier about these changes domestically to the constitution and other things that um, might limit the ability of, of Russians, and I want to sort of ask you about two two sets of, of people. One is the Russian public writ large. We've seen demonstrations against the war, against the invasion in many Russian cities, hundreds if not thousands of arrests already. And I agree with you, thinking about the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and then the Russian operations in Chechnya, it's not out of the question for me to imagine that there would be some level of popular discontent arising as Russian uh, military casualties mount. Alongside that, though, um, the Russian elite, political, business, military elite, whose interests I presume will be very significantly affected if these sanctions truly bite and are then sustained. Those suggest there might be two possible um, areas of, of pushback against Putin from within Russia. And so I'd like you to, to, to give us a little bit about how you think those elements might play out if international pressure on Russia remains very strong and solid for the coming period of weeks and months. It is an, an excellent question and possibly one of the most difficult to address. Um, firstly, because we have seen less and less of what's going on inside the Russian elite. For the last couple of years, we have seen the tightening of, of Putin's uh, circle of associates. We have seen the changing bars within the, within the ruling elite, while for, for a number of years there was a certain balance between the so-called Siloviki or those people with, much, with more hawkish views on international politics and people more individuals, more technocratically minded. It seems that the technocrats have been completely pushed, pushed aside. They, at the same time, they seem to perform tasks that they will, they have been tasked, uh, tasked with, by which I mean providing the war chest, presiding over uh, tax collection and making sure that Russia's income from, from oil and gas is safe to use in the case such such as such as uh, presently. The, the question you're asking is, is the question about a possible elite pushback. And this is something which we can only speculate, uh, speculate about. Because so far, we haven't seen any willingness or any readiness of any part of, of a member of elites that might suggest even readiness to speak truth to Vladimir Putin. The, it's not only the secret council meeting during which Putin just listened to his, lo uh, his very loyal subordinates, but even if, when I try to think about uh, the example of, of uh, a member of close uh, Putin's circle trying to suggest any other course, the only person which com who comes to my mind is Alexei Kudrin, a former finance minister, but it was 
also several years ago. I haven't heard Kudrin being outspoken recently. So even if I, I would say that the biggest challenge for us as, as external observers is that even if there is a certain degree of discontent within the elite, we, we don't see it. And I would assume that there is a problem of collective action within the Russian elite. So this is the question, who is going to be, fair, to be first to suggest any any move against, against Vladimir Putin? Who is going to take the risk and will try to find people, like-minded people within the elite who would be able to, to organize this, to make this discontent more, more organized? I think the problem is that even if the discontent in society is growing, my impression is that members of, of Vladimir Putin's circle don't have a lot, don't have any touch with with, with the Russian society. So th- th- this is why why um, I would say Navalny was such a challenge to Putin because he was recognized as as a serious player both by the society at large but also by the elite and those who are around Putin. I don't think any of them has the capacity to reach out to society or even understands uh, the, the Russian society. Whereas making any steps against Vladimir Putin may, may be just too, too risky for for, for any, um, any of them. So I wouldn't exclude the, this scenario. And the, the more, the, the longer the war, the more we see that the military reform which which or the modernization of the armed forces was not exactly as the propaganda promoted it the more we see signs that this corruption which we have seen in so many areas of of russian politics and and economics and and social life the, the more we see that it also is part of the russian security apparatus of the russian armed forces i would say the more chances that there is going to be a certain pushback against against Putin, but uh, so far it's it's he, he's still in in a comfortable position, having a number of tools at his disposal. That that makes a lot of sense. Let me ask one quick follow up there. I, I I'm very persuaded by your argument that that it's hard to see who within the elite would would be brave enough to take that first step and sort of you know have have an elite level pushback against uh, Vladimir Putin. Um, you mentioned Navalny as sort of this, um, you know, opposition figure, even though he's in jail now, but, but he's clearly inspiring uh, ordinary Russians to to push for change within Russian society. Can you imagine a scenario in which if the war does drag on, if the costs to Russia remain very high, that there's a possibility that other sort of leaders might emerge from the people, so to speak, that you would see more sort of popular um, uh, figures emerging who are kind of galvanizing that opposition to to the war and then to the regime as an extension of that. Yes, I think it is a, a quite a plausible scenario. It is difficult to predict, but this is where where the dynamics of, of social protest can can uh, can enter into into play, especially if if the Russian society if the Russian armed forces suffer heavy casualties, when if people see that they are not being told the truth that they are being lied to by the by the state media, if there are new protests if there are more more numerous protests, 
I would see the opportunity for for such a, for the emergence of, of such a such a figure. To yes, this 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 is a scenario that that I would I would see as as plausible, but at the same time difficult to to, to predict at, at this stage. Absolutely yes. Let's let me come back to you for a second. Um, I don't think we have that same dynamic in play with sort of Chinese popular reaction, given the levels of control over information within China today. I can only imagine, though, that the Chinese political and military establishment is watching this situation and imagining how uh, taking lessons in terms of some of its objectives. Again, we're looking at a context where China has been increasingly assertive uh, around a number of its neighbors, whether that's incursions into Japanese territorial waters around the Senkaku Islands, flights into Taiwan's air defense identification zone on a very regular basis, pushback against uh, a lot of the other claimant states in the uh, disputed territories in the South China Sea, physical conflict with India over the border um, just last year. And so what lessons do you think the uh, the national security establishment is, in China is learning from Russia's invasion and the, the resistance of the Ukrainian army and population to the invasion? That's the question that everyone wants to know. And uh, China hasn't really been very forthcoming about about that issue or really about the Ukraine conflict, uh, the, the war in Ukraine at all, probably for the because the the war raises such important questions about what would happen in the event of a Chinese attempt to recover uh, Taiwan, for example. So we see China reacting in standard form at first, blaming the U.S. and NATO for for the for the war, uh, opposing sanctions, which is China's longstanding. Uh, position and downplaying the conflict, call, you know, repeating Russian language that it's a military operation. And then uh, more recently, we see mo- a more forceful defense of uh, Ukraine's sovereignty. Is, is the issue of so- territorial sovereignty and territorial integrity, these are called core interests for the Chinese leaders. And so they had to to, to engage in some verbal gymnastics to, on the one hand, support Putin, and on the other hand, stay consistent with their own policy. And, and that was the same dilemma they faced in 2014 with Crimea, where they attributed Russia's move to complex historical f- factors, but never uh, recognized uh, the annexation. And even though they they continue to invest in Crimea, to some extent, it was very much under the radar. But here you have a humanitarian disaster, you have uh, casualties, uh, you have a massive invasion force. And so even China's controlled media have had to respond to demands from society for, for more information. So they have been providing some more information. The There is censorship about the issue in terms of what you can say about the the war. And there was a directive very early on that the state-controlled media should not criticize Russia. So you have a lot of nationalistic netizens supporting Russia, making uh, very negative statements about Ukraine, some horrible misogynistic comments about Ukrainian women, and so on. But you do have movements in society, some brave academics have come out against the war in China and so on. And now the Chinese government is deploring the loss of life. 
abstained at the UN, as I mentioned, and so far has not been providing the kind of lifeline economically that perhaps Russia was hoping for. Its commercial banks have been quite cautious about uh, you know, providing support for Russia just as they were after 2014. I mean, the one question is whether China's interbank system is going to step in where SWIFT has, has uh, abandoned Russia. And, and so I think China is thinking what, what would happen down the road if China tries to, if China makes some military action against Taiwan? Would there be these massive sanctions? Um, I think China, there's some evidence that Chinese officials were not expecting the level of sanctions, were not expecting the level of unity in the West against the Russian um, invasion. The, uh, the wide-ranging pushback cutting Russia out of most international organizations and activities. You know, and China is a much more globalized economy and claims to, to want to create this community of common destiny, to be a global leader. And so I think this is probably a big shock in terms of the potential opprobrium and reaction that, that could occur if certain norms are violated. You know, China would not agree that a norm, such a norm would be violated in the case of Taiwan, but there, there, there would be that risk, I think. So, so that would be one lesson. Another lesson would be about combat readiness, because we have Russian forces that are not doing as well as expected at all, considering the resources that they have. Chinese forces have not been in action since 1979, and that didn't go very well against Vietnam. And so that would be another uh, source of concern. Some commentators have talked about the, the, uh, the reaction to the Russian invasion, increasing Chinese tendencies towards autarky, trying to disconnect from the global economy further in case such widespread economic pressures would be imposed. And I think also for the Russia-China partnership, there are going to be some lessons learned. Is has this been a good idea uh, to to deepen the partnership? What are the the costs to China of this of this partnership? Thanks, Liz. Let me ask a quick follow-up there because thinking about um, your earlier comments about China's plan for you know a community of common destiny what I think you at Walmarsin was saying about um, sort of this multipolar order that could be arising across the Eurasian landmass. And yet, if we are looking at a scenario where Russia is increasingly isolated and China, by its own volition, has been pulling back from, well, partly from its own volition because of COVID, pulling back from some of this economic engagement with the rest of the world, and partly um, through through. Western democratic policies to limit Chinese investment, to limit um, uh, technology transfers in certain sectors. We do see the beginnings of a decoupling of, of sort of the, the globalized role of, of China as part of the global economy. Russia was already, Marcin, I'm thinking about your chapter for Strategic Asia. You made the argument that, that Russia was already essentially disconnected from the global economy even before the current situation. We are, though, potentially looking at a situation where the dilemma for China, and Liz, I'd like you to sort of address this, is does China face this choice between doubling down on this friendship with Russia at the risk of potentially being more isolated from the rest of the world? 
And then if it does, Marcin, if you could kind of pick this piece up, what does that mean for the China-Russia relationship? Because as I look at it, if you if you force those two powers together, on the one hand, there's a major challenge to the liberal Western democratic order. This is sort of the nightmare of strategists for, for decades about having two authoritarian powers in lockstep of controlling this enormous uh, expanse of land from, uh, from Eastern Europe all the way to the Pacific Ocean. On the other hand, though, there's this tension because China would be the dominant partner. And, and how does that sort of play into um, the longevity of an alignment between Russia and China? But Liz, first, I think let's go to you on the dilemma facing Beijing. And then if that scenario I've just described unfolded, Martin, your thoughts on the dilemma that that poses for Moscow? I'd say that this is a nightmare for Xi Jinping because he's facing the 20th Party Congress coming up in the fall. He wants to extend his term in office indefinitely. And here he has a major foreign policy disaster on his hands. Because he was very connected personally to engaging with Putin. They met over 35 times. And if he misread Putin's intentions, if assuming he was apprised of them in some way, this is a huge foreign policy error. And it, it shows that, that China may not have the best intelligence or analysis about Russia and the and former Soviet states, if they believed, as Putin said, that Ukraine would easily give up to to Russia in in such a circumstance, it shows that the the partnership with Russia has some de- has some definite uh, drawbacks. And and I think I think it was clear that this was not that the partnership was was deepening ideologically, but in certain areas, uh, such as Central Asia, the Arctic, uh, a range of other areas, there were definite differences. And so I, I think it highlights that. But but I don't see that China is going to be able to make a, ba- a major shift in this juncture because of the political stakes for Xi Jinping. I think he's going to have to continue to, to, to um, thread the needle and to to uh, to make some limited criticisms on humanitarian grounds of the invasion but to continue at least publicly uh, maintaining the partnership because otherwise it looks like xi jinping's russia policy was a failure and just like putin is isolated and the top leadership in russia is disconnected from society xi jinping has been surrounding himself with his supporters and trying to to eliminate naysayers. And I don't know that there are going to be people around him who would be willing to say your Russia policy is a disaster. Let's let's broaden our foreign policy. And so so I would see China continuing the partnership while trying to minimize damage. Thank you. That mustn't the partnership, though, is a partnership not of equals, but of unequals here. China is clearly now and for the foreseeable future, the dominant partner. How how does Vladimir Putin and his inner circle, how do they square that? How do they, on the one hand, say that, that they're making steps to restore Russia to this traditional role as a, as a great global power? And yet, on the other hand, clearly they are the, the junior partner in a, in a China-Russia relationship. 
I think this is the one of the bigger biggest questions. What have been Moscow's expectations as to China's position? I assume that so far China has behaved as Russia as the Kremlin might might predict, not supporting it fully with some abstention in the UN Security Council, but at the same time avoiding avoiding any criticism, which in fact boils down to to, to a de facto political support for for Russia. But the question mark is, or the, the question is, what kind of support has Moscow counted on when it comes to the response to sanctions? After 2014, there was this wave of expectations that China would just come in and step in and save the Russian economy. It didn't happen. Only several people with ties to Vladimir Putin have been have been helped uh, by by the Chinese banks and Chinese companies. One might say that Russia has drawn certain lessons and that its expectation have not been that high. But th- this is something which we, we will see soon once sanctions bite Russia more and more, whether China steps in with with any support. So far, we have uh, heard, that, heard that the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which, which is not exclusively Chinese, but still uh, put Russian and Belarusian projects on, on hold, which, which sends a certain, a certain signal. And the second point, you, you mentioned the, this constant asymmetry and this deep, deepening asymmetry. This is another area in which I, I, I would say that the conflict, how, how the conflict in Ukraine develops may heavily influence the relationship. Because Russia's use of force in Crimea, in Eastern Ukraine and in Syria brought or diminished this this material asymmetry a bit because China had this massive um, uh, upper hand uh, when it comes to the economic potential, to GDP, to the military budget. But Russia could demonstrate that it is a robust military power, which with much smaller resources can still receive um, achieve certain certain goals. If Russia gets bogged down, bogged down in Ukraine, it means that. Russia's uh, alleged skills in using military force are not as as good as one might expect. And it will also mean that Russia becomes both politically, strategically and economically more dependent on China. And the question, we return to the question that you asked, please, how, how China solves this solves this problem. Ten years, ten years ago, or eight years ago, when when there was the annexation of Crimea, China had much more to lose. Its relations with the West were, were better. Now we are in the middle of the process of decoupling with with the U.S. and we uh, China has uh, China's relations with with the European states have also worsened, which means that China may be more willing, despite this dilemma, it may be more willing to to support Russia even if only to send a certain signal to, to the West. I, I think that this is the area which is worth uh, following and analyzing. What are China's steps when it comes to, firstly, Russian energy companies? Is China going to use the opportunity created by the uh, by BP withdrawing from, from Rosneft? China so far has been denied 
those uh, jewels in the crown of, of the Russian oil and gas industry. Is it going to force Moscow to open th this sector to, to, to Chinese companies? It certainly provides certain opportunities for, for, for Beijing. And Beijing might be tempted to basically force force Moscow to accept certain certain conditions which which uh, Russia has been trying to to resist so far. That that's fascinating. Liz, can you respond to that from your perspective? Yes, is this an opportunity for China to um, uh, to deepen its energy ties, to deepen its influence over the, Russia's energy sector as Western companies withdraw? Um, I also want to pick back up on the, the point you made earlier, Liz, about the impact of, of sanctions and the, the exclusion of Russia from SWIFT for the international bank transfers. And there's sort of two sets of related questions there. The first is, is there a risk for China if we get to a scenario where um, the sanctions on Russia remain firm and the US or the EU or some of the, the major democratic powers in Asia are also beginning to sort of look at secondary sanctions and Chinese companies and Chinese entities might fall under those. I'm just trying to think about how, how does Beijing deal with that dilemma of uh, it, its own equities being put at risk if an international sanctions regime to constrict Russia starts to have spillover effects because Beijing has been supportive of Russia or Russian companies at some level as this crisis unfolds? These are all very challenging questions. I would say that, that what Martin put forward was one possibility that because relations with China have been so tense that China would have less to lose in this situation than in 2014. But alternatively, this might also be seen as a window of opportunity where China might be able to engage with the West uh, to, to, a, to a certain degree. There, there are so many problems, but this might be an area where China is interested in reaching out to, to the US and the West, um, if only for damage control, for its own global standing, uh, to avoid further tarnish uh, to, to its image. Because right now, I mean, I think China's widely seen as an enabler of this invasion. And so that's not a narrative that uh, Xi Jinping would like to have as he, as he um, continues on to a third term. And so there, there is that possibility uh, that, that there's, there's some um, greater engagement that occurs. If that's the case, then I think China would be very cautious in terms of taking advantage of, of economic opportunities. I mean, even after 2014, I think the companies that were working in the Arctic, for example, were those that were not very globally exposed. And China's energy companies are global players. And you'd have to expect some uh, response by the international community if China was going to take advantage in this in this particular way. And with SWIFT, there are some in China who believe that this is an opportunity for China to, to use its currency as an alternative to the dollar. And, and it, what it has now is a cross-border interbank payment system that was meant for limited transactions. And so some in China think this is an opportunity to, to make this an alternative 
to SWIFT and this would facilitate um, making the Chinese yuan convertible. I don't know how that's going to work out because this would in, this would require other countries to use that mechanism for it to be successful. And if other countries don't want to give Russia access to an interbank mechanism, then that doesn't seem to be a fruitful avenue. I mean, it might facilitate China-Russia transactions, but those are going to decrease. <laughs> so I, I don't see that this is this is a, a serious effort. And, and I think it would counter China's goal of being a constructive global economic player. It would invite further secondary sanctions and it would further harm China's reputation. So I think if the only the, the narrow goal of using the yuan more broadly might be accomplished, but the costs of that would be huge. China doesn't make economic decisions for charity purposes. They're not going to go in and buy Russian companies because Russia needs investors. They're going to buy it because it's good for China. And um, you know these gas projects that have been discussed since the February 4th summit. It's unclear how long they're going to take, like, like the Trans-Mongolia pipeline that Gazprom was recently signing an, another agreement about. This agreement was not with China, so China has long been opposed to that Trans-Mongolia aspect of the project. And so China has not said that they support it. And the other uh, gas pipeline project, I mean, we don't know the time frame. I mean, it took more than 20 years to get power of Siberia going. Uh, so, so I would be cautious about how much China is willing to take up the slack and leave open the possibility that China might want to be engaging to some extent with the West to, to in, the, in the interest of damage limitation for its reputation. Thank you. What we've discussed so far suggests that for policymakers in Moscow and Beijing, this is an extremely complex set of decisions that they are facing. Um, the dilemmas are, are, are very acute. Um, I'd like to ask your opinions on three other sets of countries that um, are impacted by the unfolding crisis. And so I'm sort of thinking about there, there's a, a group of countries in Northeast Asia, North Korea, South Korea, Japan, that are have deep ties to China uh, for reasons of geography, deep ties to Russia, uh, and, and they're all looking at the crisis in a particular way. We've got a set of states in Central Asia, uh, members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. What's been fascinating to me is to see a country like Kazakhstan be sort of withholding support from, from the Russian invasion of Ukraine, despite having Russian troops come in to help quell its own anti-government protests just a few months ago. So there's a group of states in Central Asia that are also sort of navigating this, this crisis. And then in Eastern Europe, we have both NATO members uh, that were part of the former Soviet bloc, the Baltic states, Poland, Hungary, some other countries like that, that are uh, re-evaluating, I think, their relationships with both Russia, NATO and the EU in light of the crisis. I'm also curious if there are changes afoot in, in countries like Finland or Sweden, which have traditionally been held to their independence, and whether this situation in Ukraine is forcing some rethinking there. I don't expect all, either of you to address all of those, but it, for those that you feel comfortable, I'm, I'm interested in your perspectives on how the Russian invasion of Ukraine is affecting the strategic calculations being made in those three sets of countries in Northeast Asia, Central Asia, 
and sort of northeast, uh, eastern, central Europe? I will perhaps start with, with, with Central Asia. Naturally, the long term impact uh, we will know um, only after after dust settles and after we see how the conflict develops. But I would argue that specifically China's position and the fact that China has not decided to support uh, Ukraine's sovereignty in stronger terms might have influenced the policies of Central Asian states. I come back to, I, I would like to return to 2008, when Russia recognized the independence of South Ossetia and Abkhazia. China was very bold in supporting Central Asian states and other post-Soviet states in resisting Russia's pressures to accept Russia's, uh, Russia's action. So, in, under these circumstances, I would I would argue that a bolder policy of China would strengthen or would reinforce at least those among Central Asian states elites that are still keen on multi-vector policy, as there was no such such a uh, such a in Chinese reaction. I would see the room for maneuver for states like Kazakhstan and possibly Uzbekistan to to diminish. Um, especially in the in the in short term perspective with Kazakhstan Kazakhstan's multi-vector policy found itself under the question mark already after the intervention of, of the Russian troops that you that you mentioned to support Tokayev and to support uh, his staying in, in power intervention that the war with Ukraine sends another warning signal to, to Kazakhstan what are the the consequences of of two independent a, a policy. When it comes to Central Asian states, I would see more more cautiousness and perhaps also the limitations of, of support they can count on from China when it comes to trying to, to balance between between um, Russia and Russia and China. When it comes to Central and Eastern Europe, especially when it comes to, to, to Finland and, and Sweden that you mentioned, both states have, have uh, developed Military, military and security cooperation videos for the last couple of years. The annexation of Crimea was also a, a important threshold here, coupled with the, the Russian aggression against Ukraine, coupled with the warnings of, of Moscow. What happens if Finland and Sweden decide to, to go for NATO membership? I, I, would, I would argue that it, it, only, it will only reinforce those parts of, of the elites in both states that are in favor of a more active um, security policy, including including NATO NATO membership. So once again, we, we return to this calculation and on, on the part of the Kremlin, what costs and what benefits were, were in, in Putin's and his acolytes thinking? Because Finland and Sweden, for me, look like a another loss of influence for, for Russia given given the, the mood the, the change of mood in those states in a sense not much has changed when it comes to poland and the baltic states because they have their perspective justified and, and legitimized and they, they gained new arguments for increasing uh, military presence of, of the us in, in central and eastern europe they gained arguments for for bringing more uh, western troops i think that from for those states the change of uh, Germany's policy is, is of particular importance, and they they have welcomed 
the, sh the shift in, in, in Germany's policy to, towards Moscow. And once again, it would be another blunder uh, of, 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 the, of the Russian Federation under Vladimir Putin. So far, Germany has genuinely attempted to keep, keep the balance between its support for uh, Poland and Baltic, Baltic states as its NATO and EU allies and trying to maintain good relations with Russia to keep the energy cooperation going. Now we see Germany moving towards towards the same group as 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 Poland and, and Baltic states. Even if this, we have to assume that this process is going to take some time, given the scope of of, of the shift in in German um, in the foreign in thinking about foreign policy in, in German elites and among German society. But another example of how the war against Ukraine undermines the, the influence that, that the Russian Federation had in in a number of, of European states. Thank you. Adelaide? Just to follow on a couple of points that Marcin made, I, I think in I think he's right about Central Asia. It's going to be tricky uh, or perhaps pointless to try to balance uh, China and Russia, but it does give other countries an opportunity to engage with that region, um, the US, the EU, and other Asian states, much like Mongolia has the third neighbor policy where they reach out to democracies that are not neighbors. I think we might see these Central Asian countries being more interested in, in, in doing that, engaging outside the region. Uh, also, in, in Central Europe, I think uh, that, that the Russian invasion of Ukraine also upends a lot of China's diplomacy there. China had been making inroads in certain countries. China has claimed to be a near Arctic state and the apparent uh, support for China by China for Russia's actions in Ukraine really will sow further doubt about Chinese intentions. Um, returning to, to the Indo-Pacific, uh, we have seen South Korea, Japan, Australia, and Singapore participate in the sanctions against Russia. And there are some costs to this. Uh, Japan is essentially saying, well, we'll never get back those Northern territories. And uh, South Korea is, is abandoning hope for any peninsula-wide gas cooperation with Russia. I'm not sure they would want to be involved in such a, a program <laughs> right now. Um, so there are some costs there, but there's also there are benefits for the sanctions regime in terms of the effort to cut Russia off from high tech goods because of the semiconductor issue. Semiconductors are produced in, in uh, Taiwan uh, with, with uh, input from South Korea and Japan. And uh, China can't take up that slack. China itself doesn't have the, the advanced technology to do that. It has its own concerns about that. And so with these countries, South Korea and Japan participating in the sanctions, I think that there are some ability to restrict in the long term the kinds of high-tech components that Russia will need for its for its military, if not for its industry. Uh, in terms of the impact on the relationships between these countries and, and the U.S., I think it strengthens certain partnerships uh, that the U.S. has been trying to, to forge in the Indo-Pacific, although it has taken the attention away from the region. We saw in Biden's State of the Union speech, he barely mentioned Asia at all, and this was supposed to be the focus of his foreign policy. It does raise a question about India, India being a participant in the Quad, but abstaining in the UN resolutions 
against Russia because of its longstanding partnership with Russia and, and arms relationship. And so that does highlight that India is a tricky partner for the US in this region. And it's going to be, as we already knew, because of the arms relationships, but there's also a political component that the US will have to keep in mind as it continues to partner up with India in the Pacific. Liz, thank you. Um, we're just about at time, so um, this is clearly, uh, thank you both uh, uh, for your insights. Clearly a, a hugely complex, hugely consequential crisis that we're watching unfold that is um, really going to reshape uh, the global order in, in the coming months and years. Let me let me thank you both once again. Martin Kazmarski from the University of Glasgow, Elizabeth Wishnick, Montclair State University, and currently on leave at CNA, both contributors to NBR Strategic Asia Program. Thank you both very much for joining us today and for sharing your insights. Thank you again. Thank you. Asia Insight Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thank you for listening to this episode of Asia Insight.